It was a high-risk mission to begin with, under an almost full moon and with little element of strategic surprise. You say yes, you, you go forward with an operation like this because you have no other choice. Some 40 commandos from the elite SEAL Team 6 landed about six miles away from the Al-Qaeda hideout to avoid being detected by the aircraft noise. In the early hours of Saturday, the 6th of December 2014, U.S. Special Forces raided a compound in Yemen where two foreigners, South African Pierre Corky and American Luke Summers, were held hostage by Al-Qaeda. According to reports, the rescue mission almost succeeded, but ultimately it ended in failure. What ensued was a fierce 10-minute gun battle during which both the 33-year-old American photojournalist Luke Summers and a South African teacher and aid worker, Pierre Corky, were shot by one of the Al-Qaeda guards. But could their death have been prevented? In this episode of the Sound Africa podcast, producer Micah Reddy tells the story of the long and difficult attempt to rescue the South African couple, Pierre and Yolandi Corky, who were held hostage in Yemen by Al-Qaeda. From their capture in 2013 to the rescue attempt and Pierre's untimely death, the couple's ordeal lasted 558 days. That's also the name of Yolandi's remarkable book, which will be available in bookstores and online when you're hearing this. And this is the first of a two-part series called The Wait is Almost Over. It's a story of unlikely successes, but also a lesson in failure. It is edited by me, my name is Rasmus Bits, and Micah Reddy has the story. Pierre Corky was a teacher and sports coach from Bloemfontein, South Africa. In 2007, he traveled to Yemen with his wife, Yolandi, as part of a university exchange program. Within no time, the couple were deeply attached to the place. The impoverished country on the southern tip of the Arabian Peninsula would soon become their adopted home. Something of us had stayed behind in Yemen. Some part of us had just not come back to South Africa. So we started to talk and pray about maybe going for a couple of years just to help and serve in whatever way. So. We gradually came to the decision. The kids were involved with that. They were never forced. We, as a family, we were very close. We have always been very close, and everything we've done has always been with their um, input and their ideas. Tried to incorporate it, um, and being uh, they'd been with us that year in 2007, so they were very eager to. They said, yes, that sounds really interesting. They, they think they, they can manage. So we came to the conclusion that we needed to go. And we set aside about a five or six year period where we said, let's go and see how this goes. Um, for us being Christians, it was also a matter of um, the Lord has, has said, serve all people. And we felt that that was the way that we could serve. He, didn't, he never excluded people from being served. So we um, went off in 2009. We sold our farm here. Um, that was a very teary time, <laughs> selling all our things, and um, we packed up. We didn't leave the back door open. We didn't think we'd be coming back soon. Pierre and Yolandi moved permanently to Yemen in 2009. At the time, the country was fairly stable, and nobody would have predicted the dramatic turns ahead. 
The couple and their two children soon found a home in the provincial town of Thais, in the verdant highlands of the south. It was more rural than Sana'a, um, and there was a very good uh, language school in Thais um, that we were interested in um, going to. And there was also a very nice foreigner community there that had smaller kids where we could um, tap into, with, you know, let our kids have some friends to play with, and etc. But the Yemenis were very um, kind. They made us feel welcome, and they always we were invited to meals, and... Yemeni cooking is really something to behold. Life before the revolution was um, relaxed. Open-ended time, uh, visits were just all over the time in place and um, freedom to move. We could actually travel. We traveled to Sanaa by car. We traveled to Aden by car. We traveled to Moha. We saw some places. Um, they, it was a time of still discovering Yemen and it was allowed. Uh, obviously, if you were an American citizen, then you wouldn't be allowed to travel anywhere without escort. But we were from South Africa, and with a little South African flag in the front of the car, we would just wave at the checkpoints, and they would just wave at us, and we would go where we wanted to go. So there was a lot of freedom. Uh, there was a really nice, um, welcoming atmosphere everywhere. Before the revolution, we would go on hikes into um, Jabal Sabr, which is the mountain next to Thais. We would try to go once a week. Uh, we'd pack the car and have a picnic basket, and we would either hike up the mountain or go to um, sit under a tree. And there we would just meet the village people from the mountains. They would come and sit and eat with us and join us, and we would practice our language on them. Every person was an opportunity to practice our newfound vocab on and we, we learned so much from them, their life, their simplicity of life. They, they're just being content with what they had. And it really, it really struck us um, that in, in South Africa, the mentality of having more and more, um, there was not that with the Yemeni people. They were so much more just satisfied. Um, it was a beautiful thing to see, and we really incorporated that into our lifestyle, becoming more content. If it's just 20 minutes of electricity, then that's it. We'll make do. Not being grumpy and grumbling about it all the time, but just, that's it. And let's see what else there is to, today to enjoy instead of moaning. I arrived in the country five years after the Corkies. In the meantime, the so-called Arab Spring had swept across the region toppling hereditary regimes and setting into motion a series of events that would plunge Yemen into chaos. This is where it all began, the capital, Sana'a, in 2011. Thousands of Yemenis demanding the resignation of their long-time ruler, Ali Abdullah Saleh. They hoped it would be a fast Revolution had ousted Yemen's long-time strongman, Ali Abdullah Saleh, the only president Yemen had known since unification in 1990. Amid an ever-worsening security vacuum, the local and very active branch of Al-Qaeda managed to capture large stretches of territory. Tribal militias fought each other and the state's fractured security services with renewed intensity. Bombings and attacks were a daily occurrence. A rebel Houthi insurgency continued to gain ground and a covert American drone war silently pushed up the body count of fighters and civilians alike. An all-out war and Saudi-led bombing campaign would soon follow. So, 
Saudi Arabia began a bombing campaign to drive out the Houthis. That started a year ago. But the human impact has been devastating. But hostage-taking had long been a feature of Yemeni life. It was not uncommon for foreigners to be kidnapped by local tribes and used as political bargaining chips in their disputes with government, a government that was institutionally weak and dependent on shifting alliances and political compromise with powerful tribes. Local newspaper archives are full of stories about hostages being abducted by disgruntled tribesmen. Usually the hostages, oil workers, diplomats, tourists and so forth, were treated well and would be released after a brief period of mediation. It was something Pierre and Yolandi were well aware of. Yeah, it was obvious that the stories were going around about the kidnappings and many of them were tribal. And I think there were at that stage relatively few um, Al-Qaeda kidnappings. It was very much a tribal thing. It, it's resolved much quicker and you are generally as a hostage then um, what we've learned from others treated fairly well with allowable contact with your loved ones. Um, because the intentions are, the agenda and the intention is different. The revolution, however, changed everything. The, the revolution was like a vice grip, gripping the life and the, the funds and the, the, uh, the will out of the Yemeni people. And gas and petrol wasn't available all the time like it would be here. There were shortages, um, there were times in the revolution that we would just not have any gas or water. Um, and you wouldn't be able to drive anymore. Um, they were just devastated. They were eating less and less. Our friends would, would start just going down to one meal a day instead of two meals a day um, because they, would, they wouldn't know if there would be food tomorrow or there would be supplies coming in. And I remember so well how the supplies in the shops just dwindled. Cheese was not coming to ties anymore. Yogurt was not coming. Um, you would just get the real basic stuff. And... Um, Apart from the scarcity of food, people became more nervous. There were curfews at night, not going out after a certain time, in Thai especially. Um, there was just a relative sense of unhappiness and people were asking, they started asking us, have they offended God? Why, why is Allah punishing them like this? Um, they would start losing family members in the war, in the revolution. Um, and the fight was really real. Pierre would go down to the camps where they were, uh, had the camp set up and first he's asked them some Arabic words and they'll talk about some new words that the revolution brought about because that's in a whole new vocabulary on its own and and then he would ask them why are they engaging and how do they feel about this how do they feel about their country about the future of Yemen and and the people's needs and what they wanted you know was so strongly portrayed in that time there were murals painted and and how they tried to express themselves in art they're very arty the Yemenis, I would draw murals on all the walls, suddenly you'd see pictures going up and um, they would write poems and they would sing songs about how they wanted to see Yemen be, what, what Yemen they would envision. The revolution also changed the unwritten agreements of hostage-taking. 
Al-Qaeda had entered the hostage-taking business, and for them this wasn't about the everyday give-and-take with the state, the sort of prosaic tussles that hostage-taking had once been. Al-Qaeda wasn't kidnapping foreigners to get the government to provide services, or because of minor land disputes, or because an oil company was drilling on their turf and they were seeing none of the benefits. This was about a life-and-death political struggle. Kidnapping, for Al-Qaeda, became a matter of military strategy, and for the kidnapped, the stakes were inconceivably higher. At this stage, the Corkies were increasingly uneasy about staying in the country. And as the revolution started, the foreigners started leaving. And we asked each other, should we leave? Should we stay? Where would, when would be the time that we would decide to leave? It's like walking on an airport where you're, you're going in one direction and everybody's coming off the plane walking in the other direction and you're thinking, are you going in the wrong direction? So we had some things in place that we would, you know, little markers for yourself, tick box markers that you'd say, if this and this and this happens, then we need to stop the bus and think about moving to another place. In 2013, Pierre was teaching and um, our, visa, our passports were caught up in Yemeni time system. <laughs> And we couldn't get them out of the system. They were just missing. And Pierre's father became ill and we felt that we wanted to travel to be with him, but we couldn't get the passports. We, they were just missing. And we got more nervous as the time went by because we wanted to get out and we couldn't get out and the passports were just nowhere. So at some stage, just a week, week and a half before the kidnapping event, um, Pierre's father passed away suddenly. And we had to engage some really high officials in Yemen to find our passports. They managed to get them out for us a week later, and we were on our way that, that afternoon of the kidnapping to actually go collect them, to uh, get the visa done, and um, airplane tickets were bought. And uh, in fact, I'd already started packing the suitcases for traveling back, but that would just be for two months or three months, and then we'd consider how we would go back and if we would go back. We would be reading the situation as we go along. Um, it was just a Monday afternoon and we went. We were out on our way to get the passports, me and myself. So off we went in a, in a friend's car, our car was broken and we'd been in Yemen for a whole year without having a break and we were really tired at that stage, exhausted, it was summer, it was very, very hot. Um, the kids were not with us in the car that day, they suddenly decided to stay home, which afterwards we really... That was a huge thing for us, that they, were, that they were safe, that they were not kidnapped with us that day. Hearing shooting obviously was normal for Yemen. So hearing shooting on the side of the road wasn't the thing that really made us think. Roadblocks arise overnight like mushrooms do in Yemen. You, today it's there and tomorrow it's not there. So it wasn't also, that was not strange either. Um, it wasn't something that would draw our attention and alert us to. So they were using all the normal things which would be considered normal and, and that's why it never, it, in those first seconds, seemed like it was happening. And we just drove into a trap and the kidnapping was really very well orchestrated, how they managed to do everything within the few, it's, it feels minutes and it's maybe seconds it takes them. 
and just how all your thoughts and emotions just in that few seconds and moments collides. You 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 realize something is going wrong and you can't stop. You can't stop it. Even though I did try, I, I, I tried to as they were walking me across the road, I tried to, to sit down and see if I could store whatever was happening. I wasn't strong enough but I my whole being said try to stop this, do something. But um, there was no way I could get away from the, the guy that was holding me across the road, and 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 I realized in those moments that Pierre was not that he was not coming with me. I was going on my own. But it was quite enough for them that day, and then they managed to get Pierre across as well. So if there'd been a lot of traffic, maybe or somebody had pitched when they shouldn't have pitched, I probably would have been kidnapped by myself. But they, they managed in those few seconds to decide this time to get him in as well. And what happened next? Where did they take you? No, oh my God, that is a long story. They drove and drove and drove. It seems like we drove for 40 years and 40 months and 40 days, but it wasn't that long. It was just, it was long, but it just never stopped. And we just changed hands all the time. Could just 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 barely bond with one captain, and then they would change us again to the next lot of guys. And the more they change us, the more serious and more um, you could sense the nervousness as you were going deeper and deeper into into an Al Qaeda stronghold area. You could just sense the nervousness, and they overtly made it plain from the beginning that they were doing this. This was Al Qaeda. They, they, they just kept handing us over. After eight hours, another handover. After so many hours, another handover. Just drive and drive and drive and drive. And so Pierre and Yolandi Korki were torn away from their children and their lives and hidden deep within rural Yemen. There was no news of the couple for the next few months. But Anas Al-Hamati, the local representative of a South African emergency relief organization working in Yemen, got wind of the couple's kidnapping. Hamati told the story to his boss, Dr. Imtiaz Suleiman, the head of Gift of the Givers. And from then on, the two men would play a crucial role in the effort to free the Corkies. I met Dr. Suleiman at the Gift of the Givers Logistics Center in Johannesburg. The place is a hub of activity. Large warehouses are crammed full of tinned food, blankets, oil, and sanitary items earmarked for disaster zones at home and abroad. Forklifts busily load supplies onto enormous 18-wheelers, and there's a constant stream of people coming and going, among them a hostage negotiator from North Africa. The whole thing in scale and efficiency has the feel of a military operation, and Suleiman fits the role of commander-in-chief perfectly. He has a breathless energy, his three mobile phones seem to never stop ringing, and he speaks in short, sharp bursts as if giving orders under fire. People think he was is an international disaster relief humanitarian organization. It came into existence on the 6th of August, 1992, inspired by a Sufi teacher in Istanbul, who emphasized that we should carry out service to all of mankind, irrespective of race, religion, color, class, nationality, geographical location, or political affiliation. After leaving his primary cell phone with my colleague, just in case he needed to be alerted to an emergency, Dr. Suleiman explained how he first got involved in Yemen and met Anna. It just so happened that I went to Yemen because I saw a BBC documentary on famine in Yemen. 
Well, this may not look like the classic images of famine we see from sub-Saharan Africa, but what better... So in August 2012, I went to Yemen. I met Anas. It's a long story, but through a South African contact, his family is married here. And I took a liking to him straight away. And he's a journalist. And he said, I like to help my country. So, within 24 hours, I said, okay, I'm setting up an office in Yemen. From that moment to now, we received in Yemen more than 114 containers of food, more than 2,000 tons of foods and supplies in Yemen. More than 15,000 families got a benefit from our programs. In addition of some projects related on water and education we implemented in Yemen. As a local, Anas was able to work relatively freely. He didn't have a high profile and wouldn't have had a big price tag on him as a hostage because not all hostages are created equal. Put simply, as hostages, foreigners are worth much more than locals. And although Yemenis are often kidnapped, Westerners are particularly sought after by Al-Qaeda. In the overall equation, South Africans are fairly low down in the hierarchy of hostages. In May 2013, I heard there is two South African kidnapped in Yemen. From that time, I asked myself why they kidnapped South African. I, I was sure they think that they are American or European because uh, this, like this case is in Yemen for the militancy group is like a business. Uh, then I tried to contact with Dr. Suleiman. I told him that, uh, can we do anything for this uh, case? Because I know there is no even South African embassy in Yemen. And Dr. Suleiman gave his go ahead. I said, Anas, getting involved in the hostages is not something that we do. But what have you got to lose? It fits into the category of humanitarian relief. So if it fits into the category, the worst thing will happen is we will achieve nothing. But we won't know until we try. So I said, okay. But the problem is, how are we going to find them? They're going to find us. We don't know who they are. So he said, yes, I know that. So what I'll do is, we'll extend the leverage. Don't use those words, but he said, we'll extend the leverage. The work that we're doing, we'll just increase it and go into more areas. So a borehole, a religious school, a food parcel, a blanket, some medical supplies, helping here, helping there. And the more we do, the more the people will talk about it. And I'm the journalist. And every time I do something, I'll stand in the media and I'll say, hello, who took South African people? I'm Anas. I'm from Yemen. I represent the South African organization. You captured two South African people. We need to talk. And he did that all the time for seven months. In other words, the two men came up with a novel strategy to find Yolandian Pier. They would expand their aid programs to reach as far as possible into the hinterlands of Yemen. In doing so, they would steadily raise their profile and their reputation among Yemen's tribes. Their networks would grow, and so would their negotiating power. This, they hoped, would enable them to make contact with the kidnappers and bring them to the negotiating table. But at first, the results were less than inspiring. No response. Absolutely no response. But after months of waiting, Anas gets a phone call. January 6, 2014, he gets a call. He said, are you the guy that has been talking about wanting to meet the people who took the South Africans? He says, yes. They tell him January 7th, be in a certain place in Aden. He goes, yeah, he calls me. He said, what must I do? I said, this is what you've been waiting for. But the problem is, we don't know who the group is still now. So it could be risky. You know, you could be at risk, we don't know. At the end of the day is, I can't force you. Yes, my heart tells me let's do it, but it's you in the front, not me. He says his heart also tells him to do it. 7 January, he gets there. He enters the house, wherever he has to go, and it's the first thing they tell him. Do you know who we are? We are Al-Qaeda, and you know what we are capable of.
And when Anas finally met with Al-Qaeda, a big figure was quickly thrown on the table. And they say, we, they want $3 million. I say, you know, we don't have this money, okay? No one paid this money for this case because they are South African, they are not American. But Al-Qaeda said they are American. Raising the ransom Al-Qaeda was demanding was going to be impossible. The two aid workers then decided on a different, more gradual approach. To at least secure the release of Yolandi without paying the hefty ransom, as a sort of goodwill gesture from Al-Qaeda, and to negotiate cautiously for Pierre's release from there. Imagine Al-Qaeda sitting on a table and watching albums of, of relief work all over their own country. And she took out the pictures and showed them water well, orphan school, old people, blind people, deaf people, hungry people, malnourished women, this, that and the other. And showed pictures. They said, good work, good work, good work, uh, but we need one million dollars. So he said, no, no money. For this lady, let's try to do with no money. They said, okay, we'll think about it, but we have to speak to the leaders. Maybe we'll do it, maybe we won't do it. You can go. So he left. He's safe the first day. But before he left, he wrote a letter to me and to his wife, which I came to know about only afterwards, that please forgive me if something happens to me for not taking care of you, meaning his wife and his one child at a time. And he wrote to me, said, please, whatever you do, if something happens to me, forgive me, meaning that I, if I didn't do my work properly for you or that I died trying to do this, and please take care of my wife and child. Anas now found himself faced with a seemingly impossible task, trying to get Al-Qaeda to back down from a huge ransom demand and release one of the hostages free of charge. Al-Qaeda had risked kidnapping the two and would now be asked to give up one of the hostages for no payment. It was a negotiation. It was, for me, it was the first time I find myself inside this, okay? But I don't know. I just follow my heart. I say, it's okay, I'm now inside. I have to win, I have to success. At least I, I must take one out. He came back, he came in the whole explanation, I asked him about body language, what did they say, how did they look, how did they move. When he told me all those things, I said, it's fine, wait for the next call. Next day they call him, they told him, come again, certain time, certain place, wait in the car. He was there, that was Wednesday, 6, 7, 8, 8 January. He sat down quietly in the car from 10 o'clock in the morning. The evening he called me around 6, 7 o'clock, he said, I'm still waiting. Dr. Suleiman, I have to show them we are serious. If we serious, if I study the whole time, disciplined and obedient, they will know we are not messing around. And they were probably checking him out. That evening, they said, sorry, come back. We'll call you tomorrow or the next day. Can you give us $10,000 on the phone? So he phones me, I said, no, no money. Tell them no money. And for this one, we have to have free because we've got no money. They'll say, okay, we'll let you know. Maybe we'll do it, maybe we won't do it. We need to talk to the leaders, same story. Thursday, they call him in the morning. They said, we, be ready. We may call you to come. We may not call you to come. We may give you Yolani. We may not give you Yolani. We may ask for money. We may not ask for money. But in any case, whatever we've got to do, you must be ready. So be waiting for us. They call him. It was late Thursday evening. That was the 9th of January. 9th, yeah. Late at night, they called him. They suddenly told him, come to a certain point. He went in a certain point. They told him, jump in the car. So he got off his car and he went into their cars and their operatives jumped in the car with him. Where was this? Which in Aden, Aden. Right? And then they had about two cars and he said he, they drove forever. He doesn't know where they went, but they drove forever. But he, they allowed him to talk to me. He said, look, they were not aggressive at all. They had, because they had taken a liking to him, they were okay. And they said, we're taking you to Yolandi. 
The whole time, Yolandi and Pierre had almost no knowledge of what was going on in the outside world. They knew nothing about the negotiations. So I was, I was removed from Pierre on the 9th. On the, the morning, at 3 o'clock in the morning, they, they woke us up and said we were leaving. And they made us believe we were both leaving. Um, they moved us into their room. And we, we grabbed our stuff and we were ready to go. And then they pushed Pierre down and they said I was going first. Um, it, was, it was a frantic, a really frantic moment. I was back in his arms and they were pulling us apart and I was, he was crying and I was crying and I said, why? Well, we, he's going with me because the Sheikh had said we would go together if we did leave. And we couldn't understand what they know. They said, Pierre will come just the way that you'd come here. He will come after you just now in another car. It's not safe. He's coming, he's coming. They pushed me off and off I went. And then they moved me. I, I kept, I was moved and moved and moved for 26 hours before and went through many different situations before I finally did speak on the phone. The phone call was from Dr. Suleiman and it had been his idea. Because while Anas was on his way to meet Yolandi, Dr. Suleiman presented him with a problem. Then he, I texted, we were talking by text all the time while he was with them. I said, Anas, we got a problem. He said, what problem? I said, how are you going to know who you are? She must be thinking that they're selling her to somebody else. And she's going to be panic struck. And now she's going to be separated from her husband. It's going to be even worse. So he said, what do you want me to do? So I said, you got the South African shirt on, but that's not going to help. She still won't trust you. No, no, not that she knows me any better than she knows you. So I said, tell them I need to talk to Yolani the moment they put in the car, at some point before the handover, whatever time, but I need to talk to Yolandi. Around 10 to 2, I get a call. My phone rings, I can see it's a foreign number, and the guy just says, pardon, because he can't speak English and I can't speak Arabic. And he said, pardon, and then Yolandi comes on, on the phone in Afrikaans. And I really recall very little. I recall him saying just that my children were safe and that I would meet a guy in the morning called Anas. And he said something about gift of the givers, and that's it. And what else he said, I have no idea. He, what I know is what I wrote in the book, and that's what he said to me, he said. But of course, how am I supposed to trust this person I'm speaking to? I don't know, is, is this real? Am I being sold on again? We'd been lied to so many times that by that time, my trust was no more, was nothing. I honestly thought I was just being sold on again. I tell her in Afrikaans, I'm Dr. Suleiman, I'm from Gift of the Givers, but you won't know who I am. And your children are fine, they're in Bloemfontein. And I said, I'm Dr. Suleiman, you'll meet a guy called Anas, he's a short fellow, he'll have a green shirt on. When you see him, he'll tell you he's from me, he's representing a South African organization, you'll be with him and you're going to be released. But she didn't believe all those things. In the meantime, Anas, his aide and his Al-Qaeda escort had reached the house the handover was due to take place. Anas was wearing a green Gift of the Givers t-shirt with a South African flag emblazoned on it in the hope that that would help win Yolandi's trust. And um, and I walked in and there was Anas sitting with Sultan, his his aide, his friend, his driver, his companion. And they had these Gift of the Givers t-shirts on. I looked at them and I said to myself, this is a very bad joke. An Arab wearing a South African t-shirt. I just, I was, I was so exhausted, I was so traumatized in that 26 hours and so when I saw him I just thought this is really bad, a bad joke. 
So I spoke to him in English. He said, Yolanda, do you know? Do you really believe you're true? That you're free? And he said my first reaction was, I asked how much did you pay for me? Yolandi was free. She hadn't quite come to terms with it yet, and she was still far from a secure location. But she was with Anas and on her way home after seven months in captivity. But before they drove off, a one-eyed Al-Qaeda operative had a stern warning for the two of them. Tell her that she's got one week to raise three million dollars, otherwise we'll give her Pierre's head in a box. We actually said eight days. So it was Friday till the following, Saturday. Although Anas tried to hide the grim message from Yolandi, she'd understood. And with the weight of her husband's life on her shoulders, she was driven with a stranger in a South African t-shirt to a bittersweet freedom. You've been listening to the first episode of the two-part Sound Africa series, The Wait is Almost Over. Stay tuned for the final episode where Yolandi Kalki looks back on her time in Al-Qaeda captivity. Time is, is a, it becomes an enemy for the hostage. Um, to get through every day was very, very challenging. And to try to stick to a routine was challenging because there were so many things that would throw our routine off course. And sometimes, at some stage, the routine became the enemy. And we take a closer look at the negotiation process that almost succeeded. But they still wanted three million dollars, didn't they? Of course. I Look, for, for these people, they maybe kill you, they maybe kill you inside your house. And they are very aggressive people and they're very crazy people. But I say it's okay. I just now t- try to, ma- to make a new strategy to gain more time. This episode was produced by Mike Reddy. And my name is Rasmus Spitz.